You know, for many of you probably don't know this, but a lot of us, there's a number of songs that we sing here at Cornerstone that Doug wrote. And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of a community of faith where people not only live their faith, but particularly where the heart of that faith gets expressed in music for our whole church body. And so thank you, Doug. Thanks for, thanks for singing this morning and for sharing your heart with us today. Let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1. After the last couple of weeks of working through this one massively long sentence to open up the book of Ephesians, we're now looking at the second half of chapter 1, where Paul shares his prayer for the church in Ephesus in the midst of all that they're going through, through persecution, through struggles, and through heartache. This is Paul's prayer. Follow along with me as I read. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And now he's about to describe a demonstration of that power. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word and sing our joy to him. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we need your spirit to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. For your spirit to enlighten our souls and our minds to your truth. For Lord, we are powerless to understand these things apart from the working of your spirit. So Father, would you send your spirit that we might not just know more things about you, but moreover, Lord, that we might know you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Do you know God? Do you know God? Amen. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited the prospects of academic achievement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace, writes J.I. Packer. He walks with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I have known God, and they have not. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said, but it has stuck with me and set me thinking. Not many of us, I think, would ever naturally say 
that we have known God. The words imply a definiteness and a matter-of-factness of experience to which most of us, if we are honest, have to admit that we are still strangers. We claim, perhaps, to have a testimony, and we can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them. We say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are supposed to say. But would it occur to us to say, without hesitation, and with reference to particular events in our personal history, that we have known God? I doubt it. For I suspect that with most of us, experience of God has never become so vivid as that. I read these words nearly 20 years ago, and they profoundly impacted me. And they impacted me, and they set me on a quest not simply to know a great deal about God, but to know God, and to know Him personally, and to know Him intimately. And we turn to this passage in Ephesians, and you consider all of the things that Paul could have prayed for for the Christians at the church in Ephesus. He's already told them that there would be fierce wolves who would rise up from their own and destroy the flock. They are a church that is persecuted for their faith. They're being ostracized. They're experiencing suffering. Some of them are wondering, where is God in the midst of all the challenges in my life? And the one thing that Paul prays for here in Ephesians chapter 1, the one thing that he prays for is that the Christians in Ephesus would know God. Not just know about him, but that they would know God that they would grow in their knowledge of God. Look what Paul says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In Greek thought, which this was the language that this was written in, knowledge was never purely academic. It was always understanding plus experience. Knowledge was always personal, and all, knowledge was personal, and it was relational. And there is no higher knowing than the knowledge of God himself, and there is no higher knowledge than knowing the God of heaven and earth. And so the essence of Paul's prayer is that you would know him. Again, he says that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? That you may know God. That you would increase in the knowledge of God. How does that happen? Well, he tells us what is specifically what he prays for. His actual request is this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. The eyes of your hearts being a reference to your entire inward being. Your whole self, your mind, and your emotions that your eyes would be opened and enlightened, that the Spirit of God would take off the blinders and give you wisdom and insight to see and to grasp not simply the truths of God, but an intimate of knowledge, intimate knowledge of God himself. Well, how does that happen? Paul describes three different things that we are to know, both in understanding and experience. He says that we are to know the hope of God's call. We are to know the glory, the riches of our inheritance. 
And we're to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power, know God's power. And that final one in knowing God's power, he describes it three different ways. And I, highlight, I mention this because the most significant point of this whole discourse is at the very end. So stay with me, okay? But Paul highlights these things that there is knowledge that he wants people to have, but he wants them to have that not simply so that they would increase in their intellectual understanding, though that is important. He wants them to increase in their knowledge and understanding, not in and of itself, but so that they would know God that their relationship with God would increase, that they could look back at the end of their life and say, you know, the things that I have been through, it doesn't matter because I have known God. Well, what is he praying for in particular? He prays this, that they would know the hope of their calling. For us too, that we would know the hope of our calling in Christ Jesus. For if you are in Christ Jesus, and I know not all of us here are who are here are, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been called by God into his family. And having been called, you have the hope and the security of what God has done in eternity past. You have the hope of the future, and that should change the way that you live in this present moment. And the hope of your calling is the certain expectation that we enjoy as a result of being called by God. Paul lays out several in his other writings about the hope that we have and the hope of our calling. There is the hope um, that's where he says, and where we go. Pardon me. He says there is the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. That he wants you to know the hope of the God who has rescued you from your sin and misery. That he, has, that he is the one who saves you from yourself, from the wrong things that you have done. That he is the one who rescues you from your brokenness, takes the punishment that you deserve upon yourself so that you could have a new life and life abundant. The hope of your salvation. There is the hope of righteousness. The hope that you, are not, you do not stand before God on the basis of what you have done or what you haven't done. But you stand before him on the basis of Jesus Christ. And everything that is right and beautiful about Jesus Christ gets credited to, you, credited to your account and bestowed upon you so that you can live right now in this present moment in the righteousness of God and in the hope of that righteousness. There is the hope of resurrected bodies. That the suffering, that the corruption of our bodies, that pain, illness, death is not the final enemy, but that the final enemy has been defeated by Jesus Christ through his victory over the grave, and that we too will share in a resurrected body that is the hope that we have. There is the hope of eternal life, that is that we will dwell with God in all eternity, where every day you will wake up and feel more alive than the day before in the presence of God. And there is the hope in sharing in God's glory, that you will share in a glory that comes upon you from God, that as you live for his glory, that your own glory would increase because you have devoted yourself to a cause and to a person who is so much greater than yourself. What is the hope of your calling? It is nothing less than life in the new heavens and new earth and the presence of God. But let us stay focused on the question at hand. How does knowing, how does having an understanding of the hope of your calling, help you to know God. It is that by knowing what God has done, what God is doing, 
how God is working and where we are going by knowing those things of what God is doing, you know God more intimately and more personally. You know this from your own experience. What are the questions, if you meet somebody new for the first time and you want to get to know them, what are the questions that you ask? You say, hi, my name is Walt Nelson. Oh, I say that. Um, (laughs) And then you say, okay, where are you from? How long have you lived here? What's the next question? What do you, what do you do? Right? what, What do you do? And you might, if you, find, if you find out what they're doing, you might even ask them a question and ask say, well, what goals do you have? You want to know what they do and where they're going. And by knowing what they do and where they're going and what they're living for, you actually know them more personally and more intimately. And so scripture is saying here is to know the hope of your calling so that you would know what God is doing. You would know where things are going so that you would know him personally. And Paul's prayer, which we should pray, is that you would know it, that you would understand this hope, that you would experience this hope and be enlightened by this hope. Why? So that the trials that you face in this life, that you would face them in a radically different way because you know where you are going and you know who you are going there with. And by knowing those things, that you would know God himself. Pray to know the hope of your call. Why? So that we would know God. Not only in understanding, but also in experience. Second thing, pray to know God's inheritance. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance refers to what he will bestow upon us and give to us which we experience a foretaste of now, but the fuller in the future. First Peter, Peter, Jesus' disciple, writes and describes it this way. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Exactly what this will be like is beyond our comprehension. But Paul's prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know this inheritance. That you would know the glorious riches of the inheritance that God has for you. But let us stay focused on our question again. How does knowing your inheritance help you to know God? I had an uncle, actually a great uncle, whose name was Ed Hessel. He um, did not have any descendants, uh, any direct children himself, and he was in the U.S. and United States Navy. He was a graduate of the Naval Academy. My grandfather was a graduate of the Naval Academy, and uh, he died when I was a child. Didn't know a whole lot about him in his, older, in his elderly years. He was uh, very quiet, didn't say much, um, and as a family, for a whole family, there actually was not a whole lot known about him. We knew that he was an aviator in World War II. We knew that he retired as a captain. We knew that he uh, commanded a, was the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier, but not a whole lot was known about him. And we went to his funeral for, at the church that he had been at for 25 years, and the funeral was awful. It was this perfunctory reading of a script with his name plugged in, and that was the end, that was the end of it. Really sad tribute to this man. And so didn't really know a whole lot about him. And um, when I was in seminary... We were living in St. Louis, and my family came out to visit one day, 
and we went to an amusement park called Grant's Farm, which is the zoo amusement park in the south side of St. Louis. And we're sitting there, and um, there is this reunion of World War II vets. And so my brother and I are sitting at a picnic table, and we see all of these World War II vets, and they have hats on that say USS uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And we're like, we're sitting there, and I'm eating my sausage and french fries and, you know, enjoying the summer day. And we're sitting there, we're eating them, and my brother says to me, and says, hey, wasn't that, the, wasn't that the carrier that Red was on? It's like, yeah, I think it was. Red was his call sign. He had carrot red hair. His name was Edward, went by Red. So wasn't that the carrier Red was on? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, we should go talk to them. I don't want to go talk to them. Well, I want to, what the heck? Why don't we go talk to them? All right, fine. So there are these two gentlemen who are sitting at a picnic table across from us. And so they go and sit down and say, oh, you served on the FDR. Are you guys having a reunion? They're saying, yeah, it's our you know, 40th or 50th reunion. I guess it was 50th reunion at the time. And we do this every five years or so. And, well, that's great. Thank you very much for your service. You're welcome. You know, my great uncle served on the, on the carrier. Really? What was his name? His name was Red Hessel. Red Hessel? Are you serious? He was my commanding officer. And in fact, we have a box of his stuff that we have been carrying around to reunions for the last 50 years. I said, why don't you guys come over to our hotel this evening and we'll give you this, this box of his stuff. And, and we have all kinds of photos and other times from his time of service from, from the, the, the tours that we were on as a, as a carrier group. And um, you can come over and learn more about that. And, but we have been carrying this box around hoping that one of his descendants or family members or that he himself would show up that we could give it to him. Whoa. So we go there, and he, they give us this box. And they give us this box of memorabilia and newspaper clippings, which we had never seen before, and you know, subsequently learned that he was um, the, the, uh, the, the squadron lead for VF-82, which was um, commissioned under the squadron, was commissioned under him, had the opening raids against um, Tokyo Bay. Uh, his squadron in, that opening, in the opening attack sank two destroyers. Um, uh, he himself was credited with shooting down three enemy aircraft, was um, probable destruction of at least another three enemy aircraft, and subsequently learned that he received the Navy Cross, also received the um, Silver Star, and on and on and on and on and on with this guy's career. And the gentleman who we were with, they're like, oh, we love serving with him. He was, you know, and said all kinds of stories about him that we didn't know. And they were like, they have this box, and we're like, well, what should we do with it? And they're like, it's yours. And like, well, well, I mean, does this go to a museum? And they're like, no, this, this is yours. And we're like, okay. So we take it. We take this inheritance that had been given to us, this inheritance that had been kept for us. And all of a sudden, by going through this box of stuff, of newspaper articles and memorabilia and, and photos from, uh, that other, other sailors and aviators had taken of him, um, all of a sudden, by understanding our inheritance, we had an intimate understanding of him. And by knowing our inheritance more, we began to know him more. And in knowing him more through this, the thing that it made us do was to say, man, I wish I had really gotten to know this guy. I wish I had a greater knowledge of him. So here, Paul is calling us, saying, may your eyes and heart and eyes be enlightened to the inheritance that you have. Why? Because by knowing the inheritance that is, given to, that is being given to you, you have a greater knowledge of the one who produced that inheritance. 
You have a greater knowledge of the one who generated it and has bestowed it upon you. And God has given you, has made you an heir to these things. And the desire that Paul has is not just simply that we would grow in understanding, but also that we would grow in our experience of knowing this inheritance. And I think of it a little bit differently. Now imagine that my uncle was a billionaire. He wasn't. It would be nice if he was, but he wasn't. He wasn't. But imagine that you find out that you've received a billion-dollar inheritance or a multi-billion-dollar inheritance. And you're up in D.C., you're in Philadelphia, you're in New York City somewhere, and you take a cab, your cab fare is $7, you've got $30 in your wallet. you got a 10 and a 20. And all of a sudden, you go in there, you go to pay the cab, you pull out the 10, and you give, it to, you give it to the cab driver, you pull out your money, you give it to the cab driver, and you're like, you're in a rush, and you say, you know what, T- keep the rest, I'm out of here. So you go. So then you go into Starbucks, and your drink is $15. No, just kidding. Um, you go to buy something else, and you open up your wallet, and you look down, and you're like, wait a second, I've only got a 10. I, I gave the cab driver 20 bucks on a $7, $7 fare. Well, what are you going to do at that point? Are you going to contact the cab company and say, can you believe this? He, the cab driver took, fleeced me for 10 extra dollars. I am out 10 more dollars because of that. He didn't even notice. He's, I, I told him I was giving him a 10. I gave him a 20. Are you going to do that? You can be like, I got a billion dollars. Yeah, that's a little bit annoying, but I've got a, I'm a billionaire. I don't care about $10 if that's your inheritance. Similarly, for your inheritance in Christ Jesus, what that allows you to do is in this present moment say, I don't need to get stressed out because my reputation's been nicked by somebody else. I don't need to get upset at this comment that somebody's making at me. I don't need to freak out because of the things that are going on in my life. I have got an eternal, glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus. Why do I need to freak out over these things in my life? And indeed, the Apostle Paul says that that in Christ Jesus, that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in the sons of God. He's saying, know your inheritance. Know your inheritance because by knowing your inheritance, you know the one who gives you that inheritance. And by knowing your inheritance, you know how to live in this present moment. Pray that you would comprehend your inheritance, not just in understanding but in experience. Pray that you would know your inheritance so that you would know God. Third thing he says that he wants us to know is that you would pray to know God's power. Now, a little bit typical of the Apostle Paul, he says this, what is the, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, what Paul does, he doesn't actually tell us what it's like for that power to be at work in us. He waits to chapter 3, we're in chapter 1 here, he waits to chapter 3 to describe that. But what he does do is he, gives, he describes what is a demonstration of God's power. And he describes, he says, I want you to know this demonstration of God's power so that you would know God's power and so that you would know God himself. Well, what is it? That you would know God's power, in particular, God's power over death. His great immeasurable power that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Death is a relentless enemy. It is the final enemy. You can run, but you cannot hide. Man is mortal. 
You cannot avoid death. It is a power to which every one of us will succumb. And after death, there is nothing that can stop the process of decay. Even the best cryogenics and pumping people full of chemicals, eventually they begin to decay. There is no human power that can prevent death or decay, let alone bring back to life. But God has done what man cannot do. For God, in the death of Jesus Christ, God arrested decay, for he would not let his Holy One see corruption. And he resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave, being powerful over death and transforming him to a glorious existence. How do you know God more? In part, it is to know his power. When you yourself are confronted with the most powerful force that you will face, which is death itself. For each one of us will and must walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will either walk through it with another person or eventually you will walk into it yourself. And to know his power is to know the one who alone has walked through death and come out the other side victorious over death and resurrected in a glorious body. And to know his power is to know the one who walks with you so that you would have confidence and peace and have his presence with you and beside you so that when you walk by death, And when you walk near death, and eventually when you walk through death, that you would know the one who is victorious over death. Well, if death is one thing that we are powerless before, there is another, and that is evil. For man has fallen and cannot overcome evil, but God is powerful over it. And Paul prays that we would know God's power not only over death, but God's power over evil. He says in verse 21, to know God's power that he worked in Christ when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That Jesus Christ is the one who has been seated in authority, above all rule, above all power, over every intelligent being, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Now, many of those beings have not yet conceded defeat, and they have not acknowledged him or his authority. But their concession has not yet been coerced as it will when Jesus Christ returns. But until that day comes, Jesus Christ is enthroned over all, and one day, evil and evil itself and personal evil will be destroyed. Now consider this. Is this power of God over death, over evil, is this power of God, is this just simply wishful thinking, or is this reality? Is this, well, I really wish that that would be true, but it's just... Maybe one day in the future, but certainly not right now. I mean, we know the power of our weakness and the power of temptation. Right? We know the power of how hard it is, impossible it is there even, to control our tongue. James says, who can control the tongue? We know the power of temptation, the power of greed, 
the power of bitterness that eats away at people for years and years and years. We know the power of lust and the power of jealousy, powers that are beyond our control. But are our weaknesses beyond the power of God? Paul will soon assure us through the church in Ephesus, as he writes in chapter 3, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. How? According to his power at work within us. And he is soon going to charge the Ephesians and exhort them to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, no matter the things that they face before them, for God's power working through them. And this is the power the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and puts all things under his feet and exalts Jesus Christ and sets him in authority over all, this same power that God has done is also able to put all temptation and evil under yours. So Paul says, pray. Pray to know God's power over evil. Pray to know the Holy Spirit to work in you to do according to God's good pleasure. Not just simply that you would be victorious over weakness and victorious over struggles and temptation, but that you yourself, by knowing the power of God, would know God. The final one, and as I mentioned at the beginning, is the most significant. So if you're waking up, this is a great time to do so. It's to know God's power over death, to know God's power over evil, And Paul really, really wants them to know God's power in the church. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. The church is Christ's body by which and through which he acts in the world. That the body that is made up of many distinct and different parts, being united together, being directed by the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the fullness of Jesus Christ, not because the church fills Christ, but because Jesus Christ fills the church. That the church, filled by Jesus Christ, would fill all of creation as his representatives go out throughout the world. But imagine this and consider the profound statement that Paul is making. That everything that I have been talking about, and we've talked about over the last several weeks, but in short, Jesus Christ's exaltation and victory over the grave, Jesus Christ being seated at the right hand of God in authority over every power that there is, all of these things have been done and are united under Jesus Christ for the church. For the church. There is this amazing connection between Jesus Christ and the church. As Brian Chappell writes, actually summarizing the book of Ephesians, in the statements, he says, The world will ultimately and eternally yield to the influence of the church. Ponder that. The world will ultimately and eternally yield to the influence of the church. Why? Because it is the body of him who is head over all. And thus, it contains and exerts his power in behalf of his own glory. Is that God is working all things to be united under Jesus Christ, which he is giving to the church. Of whom Jesus Christ is the head over all. It is inconceivable to me. And yet it is so common today. 
It is inconceivable to me for, to have Christians who say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I trust in him as my Lord and Savior. I'm a member of the body of Christ, yet I'm going to live my entire Christian existence disconnected from the body of Christ. People will say, I'm a part of the body of Christ, but I am not connected to any part of the body of Christ. How does that make any sense whatsoever? How can Christians say, I'm a part of the body of Christ when I refuse to be connected to any part of the body of Christ? It is only the church, not the creation. You know, I love, I love the mountains. I love standing, you know, going in the mountains and seeing the grandeur of, of 1,500-foot faces of mountains. I love seeing the glory of the sun shining across lakes. I love going to the ocean, and actually, I love going to the ocean in storms, you know, and just watching the power of the ocean and to comprehend the power and the glory of God. I love doing that. But the creation is not where the fullness of Christ is expressed. The creation is not the body of Christ. The individual Christian is not the body of Christ. It is only the church that is his body. It is only the church that is filled with the fullness of Christ. It is only the church that can be filled with the fullness of Christ. It is only the church that is filled in a special way by his Holy Spirit and his grace and the gifts that God gives for the body of Christ, though different, to be united together, though diverse, to be united as one. It is only the church where the fullness of Christ is expressed. And it is in the church where Christ's power is at work and where God is known. And it is only the church that Jesus Christ promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. So to know God is to know his power. To know his power is to know God's church. Do you want to know Jesus Christ? Then know his body. Do you want to know the fullness of Christ? Then know his church where the fullness of Christ is expressed. And pray earnestly that you would know the power of God. And that you would know the power of God, not just simply to say, wow, that's a lot of power. But that you would know the power of God so that you would know God. You may be sitting here. And thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I need to, I should, I'd, I'd like to know these things more. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, um, yeah, I, I'm not really getting it. Like, yeah, I think I should, it'd be good to know these things more, but I'm not really feeling very, like, motivated right now. Like, this hasn't really gotten me that jazzed right now in the midst of this. And I can understand that. I can understand that. And if you're here and you are not excited by the things that this passage says, if you're here and, you're, and you are not encouraged by what this passage says, if you're, if you're here and you are not exuberant by the things that are stated here in this passage, and rather you're kind of apathetic to all of these things, you're the exact reason that Paul is praying. 
You're the exact reason that Paul is praying that God would send the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, that he would enlighten your hearts, that he would open up your eyes so that you could see and behold and wonder at the immeasurable riches of your inheritance, that you would wonder at the power of God, that you would wonder at the hope of God so that you would experience God himself. And he is saying, if you're apathetic to these things, this is why you need to pray for them. This is why you need to pray for God to remove your callousness. This is why you need to pray that God would open up the eyes of your hearts so that you would be enlightened, so that you would have wisdom and understanding that you might not just know a whole lot about God, but that you would know God. And that when you go through challenges and trials in this life, which you will go through, that you too could say, you know what? It doesn't matter because I have known God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would know you. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and understanding. Father, that you would send your spirit to open up our eyes and to enlighten our hearts to these wonderful truths, these truths which are deep and rich and profound in and of themselves, but, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, our souls to these truths, not simply so that we would know them, but that we would know you. Lord, may our experience of you be ex- exceed. May our experience of you exceed exponentially our knowledge of you, and that by knowing you, you would be honored and glorified in us. Father, we pray this through the name of Jesus Christ, the one who sits at your right hand over all, the one who reigns over the church, the one in whom your power so powerfully worked in raising him from the dead. Lord, it is not in our name or from anything in us that we pray, but it is through Jesus Christ that we come before you because he is our hope, he is our inheritance, he is our Lord and Savior. And so through him we pray. Amen. Now may he who 